Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome in as we continue going through the New Testament. And we're, I see daylight, maybe. Actually, this chapter kind of is a daylight chapter yeah. uh, at the back end of the chapter. I don't know if we'll get there today, but we're going to be in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And I, man, this is like... This is one of those chapters mm -hmm. uh, that is, I don't know, this is like on the Mount Rushmore of chapters in the New Testament, right? Yes, absolutely. And especially when it comes to the resurrection, which is like without yeah. the resurrection. Have you ever noticed how many resurrection-less gospel calls there are? Did, did you grow up in, a, in an environment where the giving the gospel was, it's like, believe in Jesus or you're going to go to hell? Yes, right. And there's no like resurrection attached to it, which is like, if you don't, if you're not attaching the resurrection, how much are you actually preaching the gospel? Right. Right. Well, maybe that goes a little bit. Let's actually segue for a second here. That goes a little bit to the Neoplatonism. I'm going to use that word that has been part and parcel of 20th century Christendom. Mm. And what I mean by that is this, and let me, let's segue here. Plato taught that there was one Supreme God that was so high and so lofty and so transcendent that nothing in the created world like ours, so the physical world, could have anything to do with him. We have no contact of him, knowledge of him, etc. That one supreme God created the spiritual realm, what we may call the spiritual realm. And I'm simplifying this, way simplifying it. In that spiritual realm of that supreme God made, there are other gods, there are uh, aeons, as he would call them, or angelic beings, whatever you might want to call them there, different beings. And that's all that that supreme God made. One day, this is oversimplifying the story, one of those angelic or spiritual beings in an act maybe of, uh, of rebellion went and created the physical world. So remember, all worldviews have to account for creation. Mm -hmm. They have to account for the problem of evil and suffering. So this is how he's accounting for it. And that is there's one supreme God, which obviously got Socrates killed, but didn't get Plato killed because he's got many other gods kind of under that supreme God. And it's also convenient. I can live in one Supreme God, but I don't have to go to church on Sunday because you can't know anything about that one Supreme God. Mm -hmm, you, you know, mm -hmm. you, worshiping him doesn't do any good. So nonetheless, he, he created these angelic beings and inner, other spiritual beings. One of them rebelled, created the physical world that accounts for creation. It also accounts for evil and suffering because the physical world is evil because mm -hmm. it was as an act of rebellion. As a result, the Supreme God made us humans come down to this world as punishment, spiritual being, we being spiritual beings, come down to this world and take on bodies of flesh. So the idea is that we are spiritual beings. You can say souls, that's not really the idea, but that's kind of that works for us, that are entrapped in a physical body. So Vinny, you probably are thinking of, oh, this is what the Gnostics taught. Exactly. The Gnostics that's, that, yeah, are, that's exactly yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah. The, the Gnostics are, what, are, are a diversion of Plato, of Platonic mm -hmm. thinking. And so... We're trapped in this physical body. If the physical world is evil, and again, some will say it's evil. Some will say it's not evil. It's neutral, but it, but nonetheless, it's not good. It's not good. The goal mm -hmm. is for us to get away from the flesh and get mm -hmm. back into the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. Okay, Neoplatonism then becomes popular, and that's this new form of Plato. And basically, the idea of that is a radical distinction between the physical and the spiritual doesn't mean that one's good or one's bad, but nonetheless, they're distinct places. And this is when Augustine begins to write. And Augustine is perhaps the most profound, influential voice in Christendom, besides maybe the Apostle Paul mm -hmm. uh, in the biblical text. And so uh, Augustine's fifth century, right? Or early 400s or so. Fourth and fifth, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. He carries over. And so, yeah, exactly. He, does, he kind of overlaps that, that mm -hmm. turn of the century there. And so Augustine was influenced by Neoplatonism. And that's why it became so prevalent in the Christian church. The idea is that God's up in the spiritual realm. Like, where does God exist? Oh, he's in heaven. It's like, no, God's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Lo, I'm with you always, even the end of the age. And the idea was that upstairs is good. That's the spiritual realm. And downstairs is not necessarily good. That's the physical realm. Christian theology came, came to say that our bodies of flesh, our, um, our sinfulness affected the flesh and affected the sinful world. The physical world that's why there's decay the laws of thermodynamics we shoot prayers up to god this is like typical christian theology now right and maybe typical christian practice we shoot prayers up to god he's upstairs sometimes he comes down and answers them we call those miracles instead of saying god's all around us and dwells within us uh, and all that good stuff um, our goal is to escape this world this is where rapture theology comes in right we, we want to escape the physical world the, the, this world's going to be destroyed it's going to be burned up you know, so maybe a dispensationalist might have this uh, element mm -hmm. to it. This world's going to be destroyed and burned up and it's going to, it's going to pot anyways. So don't have to worry about creation care because it's going to get destroyed. Our goal is to escape and go to heaven when we die. You know, most Christians, what do you want to do when you, where do you hope you go when you die? I hope I go to heaven when I die. Mm -hmm. Well, heaven's not eternal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> heaven's not the end. The no. end is resurrection life, yeah. new creation in the new creation where thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, as mm -hmm. Jesus says, or the book of Revelation says, the, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven mm -hmm. to the earth. So biblical texts and the biblical writers were not Platonists. They didn't think of this dualistic world of the spiritual realm and the physical realm. It was overlapping and intermersive, whereas Platonic theology and, and thinking philosophy became the norm in Christendom, and it has become very popular today and has radically influenced um, Christian church. So the idea would be also a couple of extra notes here. One would be the goal is to get saved. And the goal is to go to heaven and God's upstairs. And we have uh, a distance God, almost a deistic God. He's not mm -hmm. really involved in things down here, though he sometimes does get involved. That's where all that thinking comes in. So it's so when you say, yeah, a lot of churches don't preach resurrection because resurrection's new creation. Mm -hmm. It's a physical resurrection of the physical body, the body that died, as he's going to say, Paul's going to say in chapter 15, the body that dies is the body that rises. And yet, as we'll see in this chapter, it's central to Christian theology and to the biblical story and all that. So, yep. Yeah. In, in my current church that I'm at, when I started teaching there, we were kind of in transition from more of a dispensational yeah. popular kind of view to where we're at now. And I remember it might've been in Romans eight and, and talking about how, you know, creation is, is yeah. crying out. We we're, were talking about how, like what, what God's going to do with remaking the world. Yeah. Cause I, I, I know, cause at that point I would not have taught through revelation at all. It's one of those things like, ah, we can't touch this yet, Yeah, yeah. but starting to talk about the physical nature of resurrection and I'm getting these looks and I'm getting some pushback. Yep. And this is a number of years ago. And I said, hey, so I, I kind of took it to a place. I, I always like to bring in examples where everyone can have agreement on. Okay. Right. right so too, I said, yeah. so I said, okay, guys, check this out. 
Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when Jesus was resurrected, he resurrected. He was resurrected spiritually. You know, they're basically Docetists, where uh, which yeah. is an ancient heresy, one of the first heresies that said Jesus just appeared to be human, but he actually was a spirit. Because, uh, appeared to be physical. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Appeared to be physical, but he actually was just a spirit. And this is just largely influenced by Platonic thinking as well, yes. and Gnosticism, yeah. because it's obviously spiritual is good and physical is bad, and so he couldn't be physical because he was good. So mm-hmm. I remember saying, okay. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he he was raised spiritually. He, he actually wasn't raised physically. And, and they're giving me this look like, well, that's wrong. That's obviously wrong. And, and I'm like, I know, right? We, we all agree on this. He was yeah. raised physically. And then this is why I brought it into the point is, what is our hope? Our hope is that if we believe the gospel and that God did for, uh, if we believe that God did this for Jesus, that he will do the same thing for us. Like that's what we're putting our hope in. And so what did he do for Jesus? He raised him physically. What are we hoping that he will raise us physically as well? And it was one of those, Oh, I've I've never thought of it, but that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it it was one of those kind of, uh, cognitive dissonant moments for, for many folks. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's also, the idea of Neoplatonism and fading the Christian church transcends denominations and theological mm-hmm. ideas. It's not just dispensationalism, but no, no. reformed churches, you know, yep. I've dealt with, uh, had it as well. When I first started teaching the idea of the goal is for heaven to come down to earth and for the new creation mm-hmm. and the, or heaven and earth to become one again. And, uh, re- and what we mean by that is where heaven's where God's throne is. So God's throne to come back to the, the creation as it was in Eden is kind of the idea. I actually had a pastor say, and oh, that sounds like Jehovah's Witnesses theology, because what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach yeah, yeah. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum is only 144,000 go to heaven yes, and the rest live on earth. And they call it a paradise on a, earth. A paradise on earth. Right? Which is actually like, yeah, that's great theology. Actually. It's actually it's really good half, theology, half right? Really, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. It, it's not completely perfect, but no. so I understand why the, the, well, that sounds like Jehovah's Witnesses theology. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, they got something right. Yeah, they just, yeah. They're just missing a, a big part of it, of course. But yeah, that's it's it's crazy how significant it is. And so, N.T. Wright has a book called what's the name of it, Vinny? He um, has a couple of them on this. A Surprise by Hope deals with this yeah. topic, and then um, after uh, you, how how God yeah. became king, he talks a lot about. Does he talk about this also? And how God became king? He, okay, he, very good. he he emphasizes the the Platonic influence and okay, yeah, 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 very good. Uh, and what's also interesting is, all right, so the, the first one that you mentioned was Surprised by Hope, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right, Surprised by Hope is uh, very good. Highly recommend that one. What's also interesting is how much we emphasize like the Apostles' Creed mm-hmm. and the Nicene Creed. And one of the reasons why we emphasize those is because we go, well, all Christians agree on this. You know, mm-hmm. like, so when we find levels of agreement, we can all start with the Trinity and who Jesus is. We go to the creeds. But the creeds, which were dealing with a specific issue, mm-hmm. and especially the Nicene Creed, they were dealing with who is Jesus. Yeah. And so he's God, a very God, very God, uh, begotten, not made. And they skip over the life of Jesus. They have his incarnation, right? And they go straight to the cross. And this is what N.T. Wright talks about and how, how God became king a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. if for most Christians, the biblical story is Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. Well, Christmas is Matthew chapters one and two, and Easter is Matthew 27 and 28. And so the question is, what do you do with Matthew three through 26 or, you know, Luke one and two, and maybe a little bit of Luke three, you know, and then Luke 23 and Luke 24. It's mm-hmm. like, why, what N.T. Wright says, why is there so much stuff in the middle? You know, yeah. What's this in the middle stuff? And the, in the middle stuff, 
is critical to not only who Jesus was, but the nature of the kingdom of God and the restoration of creation uh, mentality. And yet we have this mindset of, no, we just want to kind of go from here, go from there. And so when the creeds leave the life of Jesus out, whether it's his miracles, his teachings, and the proclamation of the gospel and the kingdom of justice and all that, it feeds into this Neoplatonic idea of, oh, Jesus was born and then he went to heaven. And I think Wright's point that, is, that he especially makes in how God became king is that the majority of, you know, that, that life of Jesus that we read in the gospels centers on the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Yet you don't see kingdom language in the creeds. And, exactly. and so the, the, right. the creeds are like, as you point, you know, with, with the apostle creeds, Nicene creed, all those things are dealing with Chalcedon. All those things are, are dealing with divinity of, you know, nature of Christ, nature of the spirit. It will go on those sorts of things. Uh, how there could be one God, but there's three persons identified as God. Like they're working those sorts of things out. And so what we would call the the center of orthodoxy, what, what are orthodox beliefs? What are the things that, you know, not only Roman Catholics, but the Greek Orthodox church and Protestants, all these things that we all agree on that come from these creeds and confessions, like these are, this is, this is great theology, but you're missing the majority of the chapters and, and not merely because it's about the miracles and all that, but the kingship and the king, kingdom of God. And mm-hmm. that becomes like, I, I think that's directly why in our modern churches, what do we focus on? We focus on how Jesus is the fancy word would be ontology, who he is and, right. and whatnot. And we, and we just don't talk about kingdom language, which is another one of those. Yeah. Like, it's funny. Another one of those things where when I first started studying with Jehovah's Witnesses, their whole emphasis is on the kingdom of God. Yeah, they call the church's kingdom hall. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and and it's like, okay, that's weird. Why aren't they talking about the divinity of Christ? That's yeah. what we focus on. And then you realize, oh, there's actually a lot of good theology. It's totally like what they mean by who Jesus is. Yeah. And and all like when you when you put the players in, into the play, the characters into the play, it's like, okay, we're not even talking about the same Jesus. We're not talking yeah, about yeah, the same God. Yeah, just to be clear. So it's to, way, it's totally corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're not endorsing it. But no. it's saying no, but but actually the language they're using, they're on the right track in a lot of places. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we've talked about this on our podcast already that you know the kingdom of God is the most popular topic, of most common topic of Jesus, at least in the gospels. Mm-hmm and kingdom language, and it just pervades the biblical text. And yet most Christians have no idea what the kingdom is even about. So that's no. another indication of, of all this as well. But nonetheless, we digress. Yes. Yeah, nice sidebar, 15 minutes for but the But actually, it's right? really significant because it, it totally is. Yeah. The resurrection is a resurrection of the, of the flesh. And so it's, it's yeah. very significant. And what have you, let me also note, by the way, we've spent a lot of time in First Corinthians, you know, we were planning on doing the new testament in the year, which probably meant like three or four weeks. We, we were going to do four episodes on each book. The first yeah, three going through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, we only did like four or five on Mark, and here we've done like 13 on First Corinthians <laughs> or whatever. But really, this book is so significant in so many ways and so many of the issues in the, in the New Testament. It seemed the best to do justice to what we're trying to do in these podcasts and say, how do we understand the biblical text and what does it mean for us and how does this apply to really take these topics kind of one at a time and, and slowly. We might not spend as much time on each of the other texts after doing first Corinthians, but I thought it was important to do this first Corinthians and a little bit with Romans also. Yeah. Yeah. So when let's, let's jump into first Corinthians. We get there. He starts off the phrase with now I would remind you brothers and sisters of the gospel I preached to you. So he's going in a different direction mm-hmm. because we've been dealing so heavily with church related issues. Not that this isn't a church related issue, but he's, he's dealing with almost ecclesiology proper in a sense, like how the church ought to function. And now right. he's going yeah. into the, the heart and the basis of who we are as a people. Right. 
Yes. And so what's interesting is we've argued since chapter seven, verse one, that Paul has been addressing items that was written in a letter to him and probably written by people that were his allies saying, hey, everybody else in the church is saying this. What do you Mm -hmm. do, Paul? And so Paul's responding to that letter. So now concerning chapter seven, verse one, chapter eight, verse one, chapter 12, verse one. And so Paul's addressing items that were in their letter. And one of the problems that we've had was what are things that Paul's quoting them about uh, and saying, and what are things that Paul is saying himself? And that leads to uh, much interpretation. But all of a sudden you get to chapter 15 and it seems like he's changed topics. So 12, 13, and 14, we're on spiritual gifts. The love of course, chapter, of course, is central to the spiritual gifts. And all of a sudden now he's like, well, as far as the resurrection is concerned, you know, let me remind you of this. And so the question is like, well, why did he transition to the resurrection if he's not responding to items that they wrote in, a, in their letter, they don't appear to have asked the question about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And it appears that Paul is convinced that what they are teaching, especially about spiritual gifts and, and spiritual people and their spirituality, actually leads to a conflict with their understanding of the resurrection. So Paul's like, okay, hey, listen, I've addressed the issues that you brought up about spiritual gifts, but let me now point something else out. Oh, by the way, what you believe in regarding spiritual gifts and spirituality and spiritual persons doesn't square with our belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And so let me remind you of that. So I think in a sense, you could say this is the resurrection chapter, that it's still related to the spiritual gifts conversation, Mm. but it's tangential by saying, okay, now let me point something out to you that if, if you continue going down the path you're going, it has a problem with essentially the the central belief of Christendom. Let me remind you of the gospel I preached to you as of first importance, he says, mm-hmm. in the first couple of verses of this chapter. So I think that's probably why he's bringing this up. Okay. Which is also something interesting as well. What he is making of first importance. Mm-hmm. He just spent how many chapters correcting them on some serious things? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, hey, quit getting drunk at the communion table, quit yeah. excluding people. Uh, you know, we, we see all these nasty things, we, you know, how you're treating your bodies. Don't uh, have sex with prostitutes because you're sinning against one another. These are like heavy, heavy things. And he says, oh, but this is the thing that is of first importance. Yeah. And it's not that those things are not important. Uh, centering himself in the gospel, you can't just start with the morals of the thing, right? Your morals have to yeah. be grounded in something or else it's just a behavior that you're engaging in. Yep. So I would say a couple things to that also, and that is, you know, sometimes we have this conflict, if you want to call it that, in in different churches or communities or whatever, that between knowledge and life and characteristics. Like head knowledge versus head, heart head knowledge. knowledge type yeah, thing. versus yeah. heart knowledge. I don't like that such, phrase. I hate that too. We yeah. talked about that once before, I think yeah. also, but it's like really... You can't have heart knowledge without head knowledge. Uh, otherwise, it's not it's not guided. You can have head knowledge without heart knowledge. There's plenty of people that have PhDs mm-hmm. out there that mm-hmm. have no real Christian life, but they know the word really, really, yeah. really well. But the point, actually, of the biblical text is that there's a biblical story, and if you don't, and if we don't understand that biblical story and our role in that story, namely that God's desire is to have His temple presence dwell amongst us. We were created in his image to bear his image and his glory, to reflect his temple presence, to enter that temple presence, which is Eden, the garden Mm -hmm. or the temple, and to reflect his glory and image of love and his nature to the creation, to act as priests and caretakers of the garden, as well as priests and mediators to the rest of creation, which includes other humanity. And that's the mission of God's people. 
then the question becomes, well, what are we doing as Christians? And that's where we get back to the Neoplatonism idea. Oh, what we're doing as Christians is getting ourselves saved so we can go to heaven when we die. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you're getting yourself saved so that you can become God's children, sons of God, to act and live like God or to imitate Christ, and thereby make him known to the creation as well as being caretakers of his creation. I think this whole biblical story is so significant. So the point then is, is it starts with this gospel that Paul's going to lay out in 1 Corinthians 15. And once it's, once you get that, we understand not only who God is and what he's done, of course, Galatians and Ephesians are really going to help us grapple with the significance of what God has done for us and his great mercy, he's called us, and that, things like that. But also to understand the, the role and the mission of God's people in, uh, in, the, in the creation story. In addition, there's this sense of, well, if I just learn the stories and if I just know these things, then I'll stop doing this or I'll, and I'll start doing that and I, I won't smoke or I won't do this or I, I'll be this and I won't lie or I won't, I won't swear, you know, I'll be, I'll be kinder. And there's a sense where like going to, this is why I think going back to what we discussed, I think on our last episode, you know, why I just don't think sermons are the best way to going about it. There's a sense where just hearing something one time, whatever has a certain amount of influence, but I think it's minimal. The impact of the biblical text is by meditating on it, Mm. by taking the word of God and reading it and going over and over and just reflecting on the same passage and the same story. Because the reality is you and I can help hopefully expound the scriptures so that people can have a better understanding. And it impacts, I think it does. I think it has an impact on people's walk and people's understanding and things of that nature, especially what we've been discussing here tonight. Uh, Even though we plan on discussing almost none of this (laughs) when we we wrote up the notes that that we have here. Mm -hmm. We haven't gotten over our notes just yet. (laughs) But it's the word of God that transforms it's not Vinny or Rob in our teaching. It's the mm-hmm. word of God. It's the spirit of God maybe working through our teaching. Correct. Yeah. But it's the word of God that's the seed that was sown in Mark 4. And I think there's a sense of meditating on the word of God and, and, and understanding that word of God. And then as a result, being Christ-like individuals and walking in accordance with that biblical story. So I think those are a couple important frameworks. Mm, very good. So getting into 1 Corinthians 15 then, what is the issue that you think... Paul is dealing with here because so far we've yeah. you know he's been responding in a in, in a way where it seems like okay he's actually talking about this what's going on here what's okay. or is he just randomly going into a giving a gospel message yeah well in chapter 15 verse 12 he refers to the fact that some among you say that there is no resurrection mm. now that we're not denying that there's no life after death that that's probably not what they mean by there's no resurrection everyone in the Roman world basically believed in life after death and in fact, in chapter 15, verse 29, which we may not have time to deal with even next week's uh, study, they were baptizing people for the dead. So mm-hmm. there has this sense of life after death. Um, they were probably denying the conception of a bodily resurrection of some nature. And the idea maybe may have been that their spirituality, that, that the fact that they speak in the tongues of men and of angels, uh, see, I've attained this heavenly status and that's what it's all about. Mm. And there's no need for a resurrection. Now, of course, th- I'm going to carry this on into the next life. Might very well be what's going on, but there's no need for a resurrection or no place for a resurrection. And Paul's like, okay, if that's the case, you are undermining in your spirituality and your tongues and things that you're doing, chapter 12, 13, 14, the very central 
tenet of Christendom, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know that you just mentioned how Romans in general, like there would be a belief in the afterlife in some kind of way. We Everyone's familiar with Egyptian concept of afterlife. We know that that's why they buried the pharaohs in the, in the way they did with all their goods, because there's the belief in the afterlife. Right. What's the Jewish belief in the afterlife and specifically resurrection uh, you know, bodily? Because is, is this like a brand new idea that Jesus is coming up with, or is there an anticipation of that? It's both and. Okay, so first off, there's never a correct answer to saying things like, what's the Jewish belief in this, uh -huh. especially today? <laughs> what's the Jewish belief in this? They are so diverse today. Which in the same way yes. we would say this to my uh, students all the time, what is the American Christian view of baptism? And yes. like, huh? You know, and it's like, yeah. well, what do you mean? Okay, well, what's the, you know, and you could pick any of these ideas and it's like, yeah, yeah it's so diverse. So what's yeah. the Christian view of eternal security? What's the Christian view exactly. of God's sovereignty? What's right? Well, it depends who you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wait a second. I'm teaching a course at, the, at a university right now um, on worldviews. And I put a slide up. <laughs> Notice my slide says a Christian worldview mm -hmm. because there isn't the Christian worldview yeah. as though like there's one that all Christians adhere to. I'm, now, there's certain tenets that we all agree to. But that list, and we'll discuss this maybe a little bit next week, that list is actually a little, little bit smaller. So anyways, the point though is the Jewish people, even at the time of Jesus, the best we know, were divided. It appears that the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection or life after death. Which, which is, is why they were sad, you see. Yeah, that, Dad joke. That uh, joke has <laughs> to come out sooner or later. So it's so awful. Got that out now. Yep. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, anyway, but uh, the Pharisees certainly did believe in resurrections, and we'll get to that in, in, just, in just a little bit. But... The, the Old Testament text does not talk about a physical resurrection afterlife as we tend to think about it, except in a couple places. Most notably, and we're going to skip a little bit just for time's sake here, but you, if you are listening here, you can, if you're not listening, you're not going to write this down anyways, because you're not listening. But uh, if And if you you're watching, there's a creeper problem. <laughs> that would be... Yeah, yeah. We're peeking over my fence right now. So. <laughs> Ezekiel 37 verses 1 through 14 talks about the, the resurrection of these dry bones and the resurrection of the whole mm -hmm. house of Israel. And there's your first real significant indication of, 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 of an Old Testament conception of resurrection. And we'll get to discuss like an Old, what's Old Testament conception of eternal life uh, later on. Uh, the only indication of a physical resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous is actually Daniel chapter 12 verses 1, mm -hmm. 2, and 3. And, and Daniel 12, that you know, it's it's late in the Old Testament story. How late it is is you know subject for debate uh, on another time. So Daniel 12, 1 through 3 is the only indication of the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous as an individual personal resurrection. So resurrection itself was central to Judaism and what we call second temple Judaism. And just to understand. Uh, there's the first temple built by Solomon, you know, 900 or something, 50 or 40 or 30, whatever, BC. That temple was destroyed about 586 or so BC. So that's a 300 plus years. And then they rebuilt the temple in 515 BC. And that is referred to as the second temple. And it's that temple that Herod elaborated and adorned and enlarged and things like that. So it's sometimes called Herod's temple. Mm -hmm. But the second temple would be the period of the New Testament. So end of the Old Testament, into the beginning of the New Testament, that temple was destroyed in 70. So that's what we call the second temple period. So resurrection was, was central to it. But, uh, but nonetheless, the Christian proclamation of a resurrection, which we'll get to in a minute, was different 
but it wasn't in a void or in a vacuum. It was that there was this con- uh, conception of a resurrection. Okay. So there's a conception of a resurrection, but not held by all Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to create an issue. When you see Jesus talking about him raising from the dead, his own disciples didn't yeah. get it. Probably not because they were Sadducees or had a theological issue. It's more of their theological issue was, you know, you're the Messiah and the Messiah is not going to die. Right. So that would right. probably, and so if you're, you're not going to die, you're not going to raise right. from the dead. Like that's probably their hold up in it. Yeah. Uh, but theologically, the concept of a resurrection now is going to be a problem when people are preaching about the risen Messiah. Uh, yes. And so one thing to recognize that is that Jesus was proclaiming a resurrection that was different than what the Jewish expectation was. So what so, was that expectation then that, okay. that righteous people would be raised? So let's kind of work our way to that answer. How's that? Okay. So let's go to the gospel of Mark chapter eight, uh, verses 27 to 38. And this is actually really significant. So Mark eight, 27 to 38. And of course, we'll set the context uh, of the fact that when Jesus began saying he was going to die and rise again, the disciples didn't understand. And the reason why they didn't understand was because they did not have a concept of the resurrection in accordance with, as you mentioned, they didn't have a concept of a dying Messiah. So they certainly didn't have a concept of a rising Messiah. So we'll start in Mark 8, 27 to 38, and I'm just going to kind of summarize it without reading the whole mm-hmm. text. And then we'll look at one part of it there as well. Um, Jesus now takes the disciples they're up as, as far north as you can basically go. He's going to head to Jerusalem now from here forward in the gospel of Mark story. And before he does so, he said, okay, here's the deal, guys. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And I need to make sure that you guys understand, first off, who I am. And then what's going to happen in Jerusalem? What's going to happen after I die? Uh, I need to prepare you guys for this. So let's start with number one. Who do the people say that I am? Oh, that's verse 27. Uh, some say you're John the Baptist. That's Herod, right? Because he thought maybe John the Baptist that he had beheaded had come back. Some say you're Elijah because Elijah has to come according to Malachi before the Messiah comes. Mm-hmm. And others say like you're one of the prophets. He's like, okay, cool. Verse 29, who do you think I am? Ah, you're the Christ. Ah, bingo. You got it, Peter. No problem. Perfect. But don't uh, tell anyone. Like, <laughs> uh, he's like, don't tell anyone, right? Verse 30. Mm-hmm. Because of course, he if he uh, acknowledges that he is indeed the Messiah, then the Pharisees are going to have to go, what do we do with this? Because the Messiah means you're the king, mm-hmm. and that's a problem with Rome. And so we're the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the, the people in power. If we endorse Jesus as king, then we have Rome coming down on us. If we don't endorse Jesus, then we have to deal with the people who are thinking he's the king, and, and they want the king really bad. So most likely they're not going to endorse Jesus because mm-hmm. they don't, the, the, the leaders weren't, didn't like him because he wasn't affirming them and their leadership. And so don't tell anybody. So then he began to say, verse 31, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days, rise again. Oh, there, there you go. Makes perfect sense to us. We all know exactly what he's talking about. Look at verse 32. He was stating the matter plainly. Mm-hmm. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, note, Peter does not publicly rebuke him because that would be like shaming Jesus and Jesus is like the honored rabbi. You can't. But so Peter's doing this socially nice thing for Jesus, public, uh, privately uh, uh, rebuking him. Why? Because you're the Christ. And I just said you're the Christ and the Christ doesn't die. What are you talking about? And look what he says. Verse 33, turning around and seeing the disciples, he rebuked. Peter, which probably indicates he's not rebuking him privately. 
but publicly in front of everybody else. Get behind me, Satan. That's significant. The idea of a non-suffering Messiah is what Satan, uh, his idea, that's the way he does. That's what the kingdoms of the world work. Not in my kingdom. Hmm. Verse 33, you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. And then he goes on to say, verse 34, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, and the passage goes on, but we'll kind of stop, stop from there. So the first thing to notice is they did not understand this. They were not expecting a, a dying Messiah. So a rising one didn't make any sense either. And then this, we can continue just very briefly. Mark chapter 9, verses, verse 9, after the transfiguration, uh, they're, they're heading south to Jerusalem and he shows them his glory. And they're like, hey, let's build a tabernacle for you and for Elijah and for Moses and all that good stuff. Verse 9, it says, as they were coming, this is Mark 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he gave orders not to relate to anyone what he had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Verse 10, they seized upon that statement, which was likely the rose from the dead part, uh, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Now, again, they have a concept of a resurrection. It's just not what Jesus is talking about. We can continue on the same chapter. Mark chapter 9, verses 30. You want to read these ones? Verses 30 through 32, Mark 9. Sure. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they wanted to kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. All right. So again, same thing that we saw in Mark 8. I'm going to die and in Jerusalem, it's not going to be good, and I'm, but I'm going to rise again after three days. And they're like, they don't understand it. And now they're like afraid to ask him. I always, I always joke about this. Like, well, you ask him. I ain't asking him. You ask him. <laughs> uh -huh. No, you ask him. Let's get Peter. He'll do it. Right. You know? Hey, Mikey. He like, right. um, <laughs> Mikey likes it. Yeah. Nice. Right. So uh, Mark 10, same thing. Mark 10 verses 32 to 34. You want to read those ones also? Mark, Mark 10, 32 to 34. Okay. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to, to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief, chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So again, third time. This is what's going to happen in Jerusalem, including the fact I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. Now, by the way, the story that follows that, verse 34, is James and John, verse 35, come up and say, hey, Jesus, mm -hmm. we want you to do for us whatever we ask, which is, <laughs> I think it's funny because it's not funny, but I think it's funny. <laughs> hey, I'm going to die, guys. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. It's going to be horrible. They're going to mock me, spit on me, scourge me, and kill me. Um, but after, don't worry. After three days, I'm going to rise again. Hey, Jesus, I'm sorry to hear about that. But anyways, hey, can you do us a favor? Right? It's like, yeah. Can, can you do for us what we ask? It's like, is there any empathy here? Any sympathy? <laughs> you know, uh -huh. I, I, I just like laid out my life before you. And uh, Jesus is like, well, what do you want? Verse 36. And I'm like, well, can we sit on your right and on your left when you get in your glory? Well, on his right and on his left were the two thieves in the cross. Yeah, yeah. And they, uh, they don't have a concept of a crucified Mm -hmm. suffering, dying, and let alone rising again, Messiah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is like, that's not for me to give. And, you know, and he goes on to say, like, can you be baptized? Like what the baptism I have, which means suffering. Yeah. Can you have the cup, share the cup that I, it's like, which is another word for phrase for suffering. Yeah. It's like, well, guess what? Not, that's not uh, mine to give, but it's for those to whom it's been prepared. And then he goes on in verse 42 to say, you know, the Gentiles lord over those in authority 
or the ones in authority lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them, but not so among you. That's what I was talking about earlier, that those in power rule with power and force. That's the way they do it, but not so among you. He says, whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be last. The, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the way my kingdom works. All right, so the point then is they're not understanding this. And so when Jesus is preaching about it, it's like, it's not making any sense. So why are they not understanding though? Cause they, they know the theology. They, you know, they would have been influenced by people who would have held to this belief. Like what, are, what are they coming up against then? Okay. So maybe the best way to answer that question. And I know we're running a little bit on time, but is to look at John chapter 11, John chapter 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And what's intriguing about John 11 is goes on to say he rises, raises Lazarus from the dead. And from then on, they were seeking to kill him and Lazarus, which I think mm -hmm. is funny because I was like, hey, kill me, please. I know where I'm going. It was so much better there. When Jesus mm -hmm. said, Lazarus, come out. I'm like, no, I'm good here. You know, right. So, uh, but nonetheless, they want to kill. And it was, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back as to why they want to make sure they could kill Jesus. And yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke never mention it. Hmm. So that's another topic. And we may have discussed it in our John series, but nonetheless. All right. So Jesus gets word at the beginning of, of uh, John chapter 11, that Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and, and Martha, was sick. And it's maybe Jesus's best friend. It's Jesus's most beloved uh, individual. And so they sent word and said, hey, Jesus, you know, the one you love is sick. Jesus is two days away. So by the time he gets there, it's been two days. Uh, and Jesus is like, you know what? Verse four, this is not going to end in death. They're like, oh, okay, cool. So, um, but nonetheless, when uh, verse six says, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer, which means it's been four days now. And so then he says, hey guys, let's go to the, let's go to Judea again. Now the disciples are like, um, wait a minute, they're trying to kill you. Are you sure you want to go there? Hmm. And he's like, yeah, you know what? Let's do it. Verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but uh, I'm going to go and awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples are like, hey, if he's sleeping, he's going to get better. He's like, no. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. So he goes, now, by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, very, uh, really quickly, the, the Jewish conception was that when a person died, they have to account in the ancient world for how come somebody could be pronounced dead and yet be alive like 12 hours later. And the answer is their conception was, oh, our conception would be you misdiagnosed. Their conception would be the soul remains with the body for three days. After three days, the soul goes on and resurrections or resuscitations, if you want to call them that, are not possible. So when Jesus starts approaching Bethany, and Bethany is just outside the city of Jerusalem, about a mile, mile and a half away. Uh, now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, the New American Standard says. 17 says that when they found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. So verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them. And Martha, therefore, verse 20 heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. And Martha said, Lord, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know, verse 22, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it, which is basically saying, I know it's, it's too late. If, if you had been here, it's been four days, it's not possible even for you to raise him from the dead now. Uh, your brother will rise again. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Mm. 
right, so this is the Jewish conception. And the reason why we're telling the story is for this particular point. The Jewish conception at the time of Jesus amongst the Pharisees. And note that when you read the book of Acts and Paul talks about the resurrection, he's doing it in such a way of saying, this is what we believe in. What he's doing is he's picking sides between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and saying, I'm on your side with the Phar you Pharisees who did not like the Sadducees and join mm -hmm. with me because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, what our fathers have always taught. He's kind of choosing sides, but he's proclaiming a resurrection because the, the, the Pharisees believed in resurrections. But their belief in the resurrection was that there would be a mass resurrection of all persons only at the end of time. Mm. So the idea of us individual rising from the dead before the end of time didn't make any sense. So go back to Mark 9, you know, Mark 8, Mark, Mark 9, Mark 10. Hey, they're going to kill me. You know, da, da, da. I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. Now I'm going to rise again. Okay, I don't understand because you're not seeming to imply that that's the end of all things. Mm -hmm. And if you rise from the dead, like everybody rises from the dead, you ask them what it means. I'm not going to ask them. You ask them. You know, they were afraid to ask. So the conception of an individual person rising from the dead before the end of time wouldn't have made any sense. So it's interesting because we really haven't exegeted first Corinthians 15 at all, <laughs> but we're having to set the stage for yes. like everything that is Paul already knows. And you have to assume like these congregations know these things. They, they've probably heard the Jesus story. They know the background of resurrection and what that looks like, uh, especially if it's a Gentile or largely Gentile congregation, which it probably is. They're going to be taught good. We could call it Jewish theology. They're, you know, they're Jew, Christian Jews, you know. What we're doing here is we're kind of setting the stage saying, hey, it's it's about understanding, I guess, in a sense, you could say the, the apologetic value of understanding what resurrection is, how we could look at biblically um, and, and how the early Christians then wrestled with the fact of, you know, what does it mean to have a, a Messiah who rises from the dead? Yes. Yeah. The idea then is the apologetic value of that is that the disciples could never have made the story up. Mm hmm because when Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to rise from the dead, they're like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. So if the disciples start walking around Jerusalem a few weeks after the death of Jesus and saying, he rose from the dead, the, the Jewish people are going to go, what are you talking about? It mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. If it didn't make sense to the disciples when Jesus said it, it's not going to make sense when the disciples say it to the Jewish people. So the, first off, they couldn't have come up with this idea because it didn't make sense to them. And you know, you can't, you don't create a theory or a thesis or whatever else it might be, or a, a hoax, a lie, or a story that doesn't make sense at all. Furthermore, if they made it up, it wouldn't have worked because who's going to believe it? The only way the disciples could have come up with this story, if it was grounded in reality, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And, and all you have to do is go, to, go through the gospel stories. The women come to the tomb. It's empty. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's risen from the dead. Uh, what, where have you, you know, where have you put them? They go run and tell the, the disciples, the disciples run to the tomb themselves because they don't believe the women mm -hmm. because they weren't expecting a resurrection. They go to the tomb themselves. Oh, it's empty. Okay. What's going on? And you go to Luke 24 and there's these two people on the road to Emmaus, it's probably Clopas and his wife. And they were leaving Jerusalem and heading back to the village of Emmaus. And they're distraught because we had thought that he was the Christ, the Messiah. He did all these great deeds, but then the, they killed him. Because Jesus is like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Well, do you not know what's going on in Jerusalem? Like Jesus is like, no, what's happening in Jerusalem? Oh, well, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was great. He did all these things, but then they killed him. And then they said, and some of the disciples went to the tomb and found it empty. 
but they're still distraught. Hmm. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, and the, or the empty tomb at least, they're still distraught. Then it says that they invite Jesus into the home, they break bread, and Jesus is he, he's revealed to them like as Jesus, like, oh, our hearts were burning within us when he was talking to us, and now we know why. Oh my goodness, we've seen the resurrected Jesus. So now you got the women who have seen him and know of the empty tomb, the men who the disciples know of the empty tomb, the men on the road to Emmaus, or Clopas and his wife, who go back to Jerusalem. And they go back to Jerusalem and they're like in the supper room and Jesus appears in the upper room. This is Luke 24. Jesus appears in the upper room and they're thinking, uh, they're frightened, it says. And Jesus is like, why are you guys afraid? Thinking they had seen a ghost. They still mm -hmm. don't believe. They have Clopas and his wife's testimony, the empty tomb's testimony. Jesus is standing in front of them with locked doors testimony. He's like, do you have anything to eat? Because ghosts don't eat food. Mm -hmm. He eats in front of them and he's like, how hard of heart were you guys to believe all that the scriptures have said that the Christ must suffer? He's like, and Jesus even says, hey, like, touch me and see Luke 24 and also and obviously in the gospel of John. And so you, it testifies the fact they were not in any situation at all where they were going to make this story up because it wouldn't have made any sense. The only way this story could have arisen is if it actually happened. Now the disciples go off and preach this in Jerusalem and the area and the area surrounding Jerusalem and Judea. And the question is, well, why would anybody else believe it? Mm -hmm. Well, A, you have the fact that the tomb is empty and it's known to be empty. If it wasn't empty, then no one would have believed it. It, it couldn't happen. And it had to be empty because the disciples were not going to be able to make this up. And the fact that, you know, Paul's going to say this in 1 Corinthians 15 that we'll get to next week. And that is, He's appeared to 500 other people also, many of whom are still living. And Paul tells the Corinthians, you can go ask them because they're, they're still alive. So there were other people that had seen him as well. And it became this, hey, we, you know what? He lived among us for three years. We thought I was a good guy. I really didn't want to say crucify, crucify, but they kind of made me do it. He healed so-and-so. We saw him walk on water or we, or we heard that story. We were there when he fed the 5,000. We, we ate the fish. We heard him teach these things. And all of a sudden, we got to reckon with the fact his tomb really is empty. And these credible people, some of them are credible, have seen him. That's the only way it could have even had made sense and the story could have, could have gotten started is if the disciples really did have an actual experience of the resurrected Jesus. As I'm hearing all this too, it just reminds me the ridiculousness of this whole thing if it's not true like this yeah. is the worst way to start a religion it's yeah. the worst way to try to obtain power if, yeah. if that's what was going after you know like everything you've just said in terms of the resurrection and just the ridiculousness of it let's call it what it is yeah, right, yeah. Um, and then let oh let's make the first you know the eyewitnesses the first eyewitnesses women and let's yeah. you know, doing all these things where it's just like this is this literally goes on the list of ways not to start a religion yeah, and, and this is what First Corinthians is about at the beginning, right? You know, it's foolishness and it's mm -hmm. and it's a, yep. a stumbling block, yep. and it's a Jewish Messiah in the Roman world that ain't going to go over well. And for the Jewish people, he's a crucified Messiah, which ain't going to go over well because he dies on a cross, and that's under God's curse from the Book of Deuteronomy. So this doesn't appeal to the Jewish people. It doesn't appeal to the Roman people. What he died under Roman authorities? Uh, no, we're not going with this. 
And then you start this religion by saying, oh, yeah, by the way, and if you want to join our, our religion, you have to take up your cross and follow us, too. Like, I'm not, I ain't doing that. No mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Like, what? You know, if you're going to start a religion, it's like, you know, hey, guys, give all your possessions to us, you know, because we're God's you know, holy yeah, people yeah. And, and God's ordained us and, and we'll, we'll, we'll use the resource as well. Don't worry about it. You know, we're going to need a plane to kind of get around the Roman world. <laughs> just, just make, And we're going to need like a nice house and some extra cars. A couple nice know? houses, actually. Yeah. Well, we, we, you know, God doesn't want us to live in like discomfort. So when we mm -hmm. go to Ephesus, we, you know, we have to, you know, and how are we going to be able to witness to like the leaders in Rome if we're like living in a shanty? So we need a, we need a nice place, you know, right? You know, and, and we're going to have to wine and dine and, you know, have an expense report and be able to, you know, take Roman leaders out to dinner once in a while and show them and then, and then we'll preach to them. That's how you start religions. Mm -hmm. And the disciples are like, oh, by the way, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Like, you know, Jesus might have said that, but let's leave that one out, right? Yeah. You know, in, in an honor and shame society, you don't pursue shame to yeah. start a religion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The virtue of humility mm -hmm. was not a virtue. No, no. Humility is what you have because you don't have honor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so everything about the biblical story says this ain't going to work, <laughs> even if it's grounded in the truth. How does it work? How do, why do people believe in this? I think the answer, by the way, and conservatives might not like it as much as uh, you know, conservatives, theologically conservative is what I mean. And that is because the Holy Spirit was at work. I think mm. the people saw the manifestation of the Spirit. And you know, C.S. Lewis says it's that the greatest witness to the gospel is the transformed lives of Christians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When people see a tax collector like Zacchaeus, corrupt as he was, transformed, to the to becoming a humble servant of Jesus, you're like something happened here, mm -hmm. and whether it's the manifestation of the Spirit and miracles and things of that nature, also I, I think all that attests uh, to the to the veracity, the trustworthiness of this story. Yeah. Well, with that though, it's interesting because we're we're hearing all of this from Paul. We've been living in Paul, yeah, who was not an early subscriber. He was, you know, he he was yeah. not part of that first wave. And you you have to imagine. He was hearing of this. I mean, he was a well-trained guy. He was a Pharisee. Like he was hearing the scuttlebutt of this Messiah. And we right. don't see him in the gospels. We first see him and encounter him in, in Acts uh, at the stoning of Stephen. But even for him, it was like, this is not something that he believed. He had to have an encounter that yes. completely rocked him where God basically said, no, you're going to believe this. I'm not, yes. I'm not asking you to do it. It's just going to happen. Yes. In fact, so the disciples... You know, people can say, well, I don't believe the disciples because they made it up because, you know, they followed Jesus around and now he's crucified. So, of course, they made up a story. Mm -hmm. And our answer is they would never have made up this story because it didn't make sense to anybody no. and no one's going to believe it. And it's about plucking your eye out and being poor and following Jesus by taking up your cross. You're not going to make this story up. Mm -hmm. But the thing about Paul is the fact that he has a motive to not believe. He's He's religiously convinced that the Christians were blaspheming, you know, claiming that Jesus is the temple and things of that nature, and maybe that he's the Lord, uh, he's Yahweh of the Old Testament, things of that nature. That's blasphemy, and mm -hmm. God's going to condemn us all if you're bla I know it's this corporate societal thing that if some of the Jews have gone bad within our community, then God's going to punish us all. So I need to go out and punish these people that they stop teaching what they're teaching for all of our sakes, our own mm -hmm. well-being. So Paul, Acts uh, 8, Acts 9 now, mm -hmm. he's traveling to Damascus because Christians have escaped 
to Damascus with letters of extradition to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And who knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but nonetheless, they're at least going to be arrested and brought before trial. And on the way, Acts 9, Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? Mm -hmm. Which means he answered his own question. Mm -hmm. I know you're the Lord, but yet who are you? Because you just said, I'm persecuting you. And I'm not, I'm after the Christians. You should know that. And then the answer is I'm Jesus mm. whom you're persecuting. You're like, can you imagine the, oh no moment, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, have I messed this up now? No uh, side note here that Paul was not converted on the road to Damascus. He's blinded. Yeah. And blindness is never associated with salvation and coming into the light. He's converted because Ananias lays his hands on Paul. Mm-hmm. And God appears to Ananias three days later, you know, and Paul's in, in Damascus. And by the way, blind for three days, Jesus in the mm -hmm. tomb for three days. Obviously, it's, it, the perils are there. And God says, Ananias, I want you to go to this Paul guy. And, you know, lay hands on him. He's my servant. He's going to take the gospel of the kings and Gentiles. And, and, I, and I was like, Lord, you know who he is and why he's here. And the point of that is, Paul was on the other side. And then as an enemy and as an opponent of the gospel, if he becomes a Christian, he has to surrender everything he, he's grown up for, all of his ideals, his aspirations, his education, his mm. training, his status, his position in Jerusalem. He's not welcome in Jerusalem any longer. He's going to be, he's a, he's in danger in Jerusalem financially, economically, socially, politically. This is not advantageous. And the question becomes, okay, why would Paul believe? Mm-hmm. Why would, why would someone like Paul, who's, is, you know, I've joked at times, like you imagine God up in heaven going to the angels, Hey guys, guess who I'm going to, I'm going to have to become a Christian today. Like uh -huh. who, who Paul or Saul? Like, no, there's no way that guy's like, you know, a hell's angel. Who's like never yeah, yeah. going to become a Christian type of thing. It's like, yeah, he was that opposed to the Christian gospel. The only way you can explain his conversion and the sacrifices he goes through, which we'll discuss in Second Corinthians, the, the life that Paul lived, mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the hardships he endured, the only way you can explain it is he had a real encounter, and which it, we would say is of Jesus. Well, and I was as we're talking about this, it's, it's reminding me of when we were going through the book of Acts and we interviewed uh, your friend Dave Hatfield. Yes. Who, like, this is a guy who yeah. has a very successful career and he could have had a very comfortable life. Yes. And there's no reason for him to give that up and then to spend half the year in Kenya right. uh, with amongst orphans and amongst, you know, in the garbage dumps and those sorts of things. Yeah. There's no, re he's not doing that to get rich. He's not doing that to get fame and fortune, <laughs> you know, and yeah, a book might have come out of it that we plugged and, and, you know, those sorts of things. But no money's not, coming from that book. Yeah. No, no yeah. money's coming. Yeah. But okay. The notoriety, but it's like, no, there's there's no reason that you would do that to become successful outside of a supernatural experience right. yeah and add to the fact though that paul when he enters jerusalem they beat him yeah trying to kill him like mm -hmm. this, this this is who this guy is so why was the lazarus story not told in matthew mark and luke i think it was not told in matthew mark and luke because lazarus was still alive yeah yeah and if they and if they identified him in matthew mark and luke then they go oh that's the guy that's where he is he lives in yeah. this house he's you know I think when John's gospel is written, it's now safe to tell the story because yeah. those people have passed.
It's the oh. same reason why uh, Mary is not identified in the uh, yeah. as anointing uh, the Jesus woman anoints in Mark. Jesus. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. the, her story will be told forever. Yeah. But, but, yeah. She's not named until yeah. we get to John's gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So very good. Okay. Hey, great introduction. We didn't <laughs> that was that was the, the intro to the episode, yet, right? But we'll do that next week. <laughs> so are we gonna are we gonna uh, keep going through this in uh, next week? Then actually, yeah. work through the passage. We'll, we'll work through First Corinthians fifteen next week. Good. That'll be good. Fun. Awesome. Well, hey, like. We should be. Why aren't we releasing this around Easter? That's what I want to know. Like this would have so, been a good Easter episode. <laughs> the way I say it is this. So think about this, by the way. Most liturgical churches don't do this, but most churches that are even liturgical still don't actually follow the liturgy. And that is, we spend four weeks talking about Christmas, mm-hmm. right? Advent, the, the birth of Jesus. That's cool, mm-hmm. great. We have one week for Easter. Mm-hmm. Like what? Like every Sunday should be Easter. And that's what I used to, when I was preaching, I used to say, listen, every Sunday is Easter. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, going back to our conversation on communion really quickly, the reason why we, we celebrate communion on Sunday is because we honor the resurrection of Jesus. We changed the Sabbath day to Sunday to honor mm-hmm. his resurrection by taking of communion. He's the bread that rises. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, every Sunday is, is Easter. And you know, the, what we experience on Sunday on Easter the hope and all, it's like that's every sunday folks mm-hmm. and it's every day of the week also so absolutely yeah. yeah good well hopefully this is enjoyable come back next week and we'll continue on see you guys later thank you for listening to today's podcast please subscribe to and like our podcast you can follow rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com see you next time